Hello and welcome back to The Bilbao Effect, the podcast series from FDI Intelligence asking the question, can culture boost economic development? I'm Seth O'Farrell, FDI's global investment reporter, and in this episode, we'll be talking to Svanhilde Konradsdottir, the director of Harper Concert Hall in Reykjavik. Home to the Icelandic Symphony Orchestra, the honeycomb glass structure stands proud overlooking Reykjavik's old town and harbour. Designed by artist Olafur Eliasson, its facade is composed of thousands of geometrically shaped glass panels to reflect the country's basalt columns. Another cultural institution that moonlights as a landmark of contemporary architecture, Harper won the Mies van der Rohe Award in 2013. Construction began in 2007 but was halted during the financial crash of 2008 and 9 when the country went into an economic crisis. As it emerged from the crisis, the building project, which cost 18.6 billion Icelandic krona, or 120 million euros, was thought to be a symbol of the greed and excess of the 2000s, when Iceland rapidly expanded its banking system on credit. But despite a rocky start following its opening in 2011, Harper has turned this reputation around. Now celebrating its 10th anniversary, the concert hall boasts roughly a 70% approval rating from Icelanders. In addition to being Harper's current director, Svanhilde has long been involved in the cultural scene in Iceland, notably as director of the Department of Culture and Tourism for the city of Reykjavik. It is a pleasure to have her on the show. Svanhilde, welcome to the Bilbao Effect. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Can you tell us a bit about how Harper has grown over the past years, given that this year we're celebrating its 10th anniversary? Well, I mean, it's it's really been uh, quite amazing, I have to say. Uh, I have to put it into a little bit of context for your uh, listeners, because Iceland is a um, um, small country. I mean, we have a, a population of around 370,000, and the population here in Reykjavik and the capital area is about two-thirds of that, so around 200,000. So that's the sort of context. So when I tell you that... Um, in the last normal year we had, which was 2019, we had around 2 million visits to Harpa and around um, 1,250 events taking place uh, in, the, in this building. So I think that, that tells you sort of volumes about how it has developed and grown and, um, and really blossomed, you know, in the, in the last 10 years. Of course, we don't speak about... Uh, 2019, 20, and uh, half of 21, but but this is mm-hmm. the indication of how it has uh, uh, really worked out. Mm-hmm. And it's the result of decades of lobbying and fundraising uh, from many in Iceland, with the driving force to build a home for the Icelandic Symphony Orchestra. Can you tell us a bit about when the idea for the concert hall first started to gain traction in the early 2000s? Mm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, I think really the um, the push for it came from musicians and and art lovers and music lovers, and that's been that was a lobby going on for decades, really. And they were raising funds and and really trying to keep this on the agenda. Uh, it was important for as a home for the Iceland Symphony Orchestra, which was at the time um, playing in a in a cinema. Uh, but also for Icelandic music in general, and you know, just to create a, 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 a platform for visiting international acts as well. So um, this this has, as I said, been going on for decades—a dream of a hundred years, I could say. Um, mm-hmm. But it was around 2000, I think it was 1999, uh, that city and state got together and declared that they were actually going to do it. 
um, a little bit of a, a changed plan from the initial just a, a building for music. And um, and then um, in um, 2000, yes, around 2004, basically, it was really on track. And 2006, they made a contract with a private partner, uh, which is a bit of a story. I don't know whether you want me to sort of um, uh, explain that a little bit. Uh, go on, uh, then. Be yeah, a brief, because the brief explanation. Br brief explanation, because the... The unusual thing about this project, when city and state got together, I mean, the city came on board and they wanted this to be also a, a conference uh, center and a sort of a new anchor for the for the development of the city center. But they decided that this would be a public-private partnership. So basically, they're not, you know, building a, a cultural institution or anything like that. It was a tender in the European economic area, and the private partner was supposed to uh, design, build, and operate this building for 35 years with a contract, um, through a contract with the public partners. So that that's sort of how it really started. Mm -hmm. And let's fast forward a little bit then to 2011 when it opened. Um, can you tell us a bit about the initial reaction to the building? As I mentioned in my introduction, Iceland was in the throes of economic crisis at that point. How did the the resentment felt towards Harper unfold? Right. I mean, um, as I mentioned, the private partner uh, was was key. And during the economic crash, the private partner went bankrupt, uh, which and, and the building was like, well, just more than over half built, I would say, at the time. So this was a major crisis. Of course, the, the I mean, the, the government, the, the state and the city and everyone was was in absolute shock uh, with what was happening. And um the sentiments, or I mean, strong feelings and mixed feelings, uh, but a lot of people felt that the building, as you said, was like a symbol of the greed. It was too big. It was huge. Um, and they were saying, well, let's tear it down or let's just leave it half built, you know, or let's even, some said, let's even turn it into a, a prison for the white collar criminals, you know, the banksters. <laughs> so this is this is the, the thing that was going on at the time. Incredibly strong uh, emotions. Mm. And uh, so uh, it was very brave. It was a very brave decision made by the then mayor of Reykjavik and the minister of culture, incidentally, both women uh, who mm -hmm. today are very supportive of Harpa. Um, they made the decision that, that sort of the public partner, city and state would overtake the project, continue with the building and finish what had been started, you know, realize this dream of a uh, hundred years. And so we opened, not fully built, but mostly, you know, in May 2011. And it took a while. And I think it has been a, a miracle in a way how quickly um, the the sort of managers here and, and everyone connected to Harpa managed to turn this sentiment. I, would, I wouldn't say turn it around, but just to build that support and build that uh, belief and understanding of what this house can do and and was basically doing for um, uh, Icelandic culture, of course, and and for the community as a whole. Mm -hmm. And there was also a possibility a, the possibility of closing it down was also debated, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, and and to be honest, I would say for the first three, easily three years um, of um, of what, you know when it started operating. I mean that that debate was going on. And some people felt so strongly that, you know, at the time when um, the Icelandic state had to cut down in health services and the hospitals and whatever, and they were still putting money into building a monument, you know, what people thought would be a monument. 
Uh, and there was also the fear, and understandable fear, that this would be uh, an elitist kind of house. It would not be open. It would just be dedicated to some sort of a, a small minority of, of highbrow culture. Um, and that turned out to be, um, thankfully, uh, wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about how it how it's helped then the local community and not just um, as an elitist institution, but as a as a, an institution with open arms. What what what's the tangible benefit been for the people of Reykjavik and Iceland? Well, I wish I could sort of give you exact figures. I wish we had measured or the university here or, or anyone had sort of measured exactly what the benefits have been, has been in terms of, obviously, there is economic value, uh, without a doubt. Uh, if I just sort of look at the, um, the role that Harpa plays as an international conference center, uh, we have attracted... Uh, you know, international events and therefore income to, to Reykjavik and Iceland that otherwise would not have uh, come to the city. Um, uh, of course, when it comes to the cultural part, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, there are like sort of 1,200, 1,300 events every year. So in terms of, of volume, in terms of variety, quality, uh, facilities for, for the local community, for the local, let's say, uh, musicians, it has been an absolute uh, uh, revolution. Um, Harpa is also a very sort of open house, very accessible house. And, um, and so it's, it's almost like a city square under a roof. Mm. Um, these are just a, a few things that I can mention. And I also think, and I, I perhaps can draw a little bit on my previous experience. I was working for uh, Reykjavik when Reykjavik was a European city of culture in, in the year 2000. And you could really sense the the impact and the value of of a sort of uh, unifying, if you like, project, something to be proud of. How that sort of can um, how that can inspire and uh, strengthen the self confidence and just create new ideas and create courage to move forward into all kinds of things that otherwise would not have been uh, conceivable, really. And I think to a degree, Harpa has played a role in that as well, uh, a major role, I would say. Uh, today and for the last 10 years, we've had a venue here, we've had an attraction, a world-class acoustics that, that makes Reykjavik and Iceland really uh, a strong sort of an in interesting option for the best orchestras in the world, for uh, international artists that otherwise perhaps would not come to Iceland because they wouldn't have an appropriate venue or, you mm. know, services and, 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 uh, and the, um, well, how, how can I say, the context uh, that would be appropriate. And now this is here. So I think th that is tremendously valuable. And it also, I mean, I can say, to try and sum it up, I mean, it, Harpa has really uh, both expanded and and cultivated the the sort of home ground when it comes to particularly music and and culture and that uh, connected to music, but it's also brought the world stage uh, home to to Reykjavik or to Reykjavik. So um, uh, with this, it's um, it's just expanded everything. It's it's expanded Reykjavik. It's expanded um, uh, Iceland as a as a cultural. Um, platform or a home of culture mm -hmm. so it's you're saying it's a revolution that it, and it has basically put iceland on the map in a way that otherwise would not have happened 
Yes, I mean that that's my opinion, but of course I would say that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Being in this position, but I I I don't think uh you know anyone can really argue that Harpa hasn't been a game changer to yeah, to sort of uh, to be honest. Mhm. And this has also coincided with a, a tourism boom essentially since the economic crisis or rather since the early 2010s. How much do you think this has been a driving factor behind Harpa's success? Um, I think, well, we know for a fact that, that uh, something like 70% or even more than 70% of, of international visitors that come to Reykjavik, they come and, and visit Harpa. Those who stay in Reykjavik overnight, they come and visit Harpa. So it is definitely, I mean, it's a landmark. It's an, it's an iconic building that you really want to go and see. Um, you mentioned in your introduction, uh, Oliver Eliasson, this absolutely fantastic artist being the creator of, of the facade, which is such a, a key element to Harpa. Uh, the architects were Henning Larsen, uh, the Danish architects that, mm -hmm. that also um, uh, designed the uh, Copenhagen Opera House and so many other wonderful buildings. So um, it, it has really been an attraction and it's sort of, I think, strengthened Reykjavik as a destination without a doubt. Um, whether it has driven, you know, X percentage of more tourism to Iceland, I cannot say for sure. But I can definitely say that it has, has uh, created more opportunities in, in cultural tourism, music tourism. And, uh, and as I said earlier, I mean, it's, it's a concert hall and it's a conference center. And we have international events, some of them annual here, some of them very high level. Mm -hmm. uh, that are sort of, the, the, you can say, a vehicle for, for branding Reykjavik as, a, as an interesting destination. Mm -hmm. And one of the central questions to this podcast is, can culture boost economic development? Do you think it's fair to say that Harper has done this? Or do you think that it's more that it, it was a reflection of the economic situation at the time? So when the crisis happened, it becomes, you know, it's lambasted for being a beacon of greed. And then fast forward 10 years and Iceland has sort of undergone this big tourism boom and it has massive approval ratings and is enjoyed by tourists and locals alike. Well, I think to be honest, Harpa would not have been built um, uh, had we not had those prosperous, you know, sort of uh, boom years uh, in the 2000 plus. And I don't think Harpa would have been built if they had not added this sort of commercial part to it, which is the, the, the conference center. It would have, obviously, it would have just been a very, very different building, probably not a spectacular one or an iconic one as it is now. Um, so, but you know the whole the, the just the sheer scale of the activities in the building as i mentioned like 1200 events a year and also and what we have perhaps not touched upon uh in in much detail is this initial thought of the city that by building this house in this particular location they would really develop the the old center of the city they would develop an area in the harbor which was really industrial and a bit sort of derelict i mean there were like huge car parks and storage spaces and stuff and uh, and create a totally new sort of um, axis and an anchor and this has really been successful so i mean it was delayed by a few years the development around harpa mm -hmm. but just now i mean i look out my window and i can see a uh, um, a Reykjavik edition uh, five-star hotel 
being they're going to open it. I think in a in a month or so, or a few weeks time, just coming next next door to Harpa. Uh, the headquarters of the National Bank of Iceland are being built. Um, uh, luxury apartments, retail spaces, absolutely a wonderfully varied and vibrant um, a development in mm. an area that otherwise was. I wouldn't say derelict, but but definitely not uh, um, an active city space. Mm-hmm. And the, so and the bank's in, back. In, in, <laughs> the bank is back. Well, the banks have been back, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the bank is back, yes. Um, the National Bank. And Bilbao, you know, after which this podcast is named, underwent a similar transformation in a similar sort of space in its city. I mean, also the city was much more industrial than, than Reykjavik is or was. Yeah. But to what extent has Bilbao provided a model then for Harper or the success of the Guggenheim in Bilbao provides a model for Harper? Well, I, I can't say uh, officially that that it has been a model. I think I think in general, the I mean, the Bilbao effect is, is so well known. And um, uh, for me personally, it's been an inspiration. I remember I was so, uh, well, I love the architect, of course, and, and all his buildings. So I have been there twice just to admire and experience uh, the building. Um, so I, I don't think it was like a, something that that the uh, public partners wanted to emulate or say, well, we are going to have our own Guggenheim effect here. But we know that iconic buildings um, have this sort of aura, this sort of magical uh, pull, but but they are nothing if they haven't got content. And I think this is the key Mm. in addition to being a beautiful, spectacular building. But this is the key to Harpa's success and the wow factor and, and all the positivity that, that surrounds uh, the building, that it's it's really a building that is both accessible and aspirational and it's open and it's it's alive. And, you know, the content is what matters at the end of the day, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Certainly. Well, can you tell us a bit about the the content then? Can you tell us a bit about the programming and, and perhaps how the programming compares to European concert halls elsewhere? Well, we are um, we are not a, 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 an ordinary or a European style concert hall because we are we are not a cultural institutions. We are a public limited company. So we're also, you know, commercial um, uh, in, in addition to obviously the cultural part. We do not ourselves, the house does not itself program an awful lot. So we are a venue, we hire out, we have resident companies, which are really the backbone or the heart of the programming in Harpa. The ISO, the Icelandic Symphony Orchestra being the, the, the most significant one, they have something like a hundred concerts a year uh, and educational programming for children and so forth. It's the um, uh, Icelandic Opera as well, which is a resident company and the Reykjavik Big Band. Um, and so these are really, as I said, the, the, the sort of core of the programming. And then we have dozens, if not more than a hundred individual uh, events organizers and promoters in in music and in all kinds of other uh, areas that that come to Harpa, hire um, a hall, do their thing, or perhaps in some instances, come into collaboration with us. So we, for example, collaborate with some of the annual festivals like the Jazz Festival and so forth. And we have, uh, since I came here, we have been sort of building a strategy um, and for the first time having a programming policy 
when it comes to particularly educational program outreach to families and to sort of develop the audience development um, for Harpa as a whole. Mm-hmm. I hope that sort of gives you a, a little bit of idea. And you, you mentioned that Harper is a public limited company. Do you think that a framework of of business or if business sort of houses a cultural institution, if you like, it, do you attribute some of Harper's success to that model? Well, partly, but then again, uh, it's also quite tricky. Um, and, and there are clashes and tensions between the expectation that, for example, uh, we we feel, and, and rightly so, uh, a lot of the musicians have and those who are organizing cultural events, that they feel that Harpa should be cheaper, you know, to rent. They feel that Harpa is quite expensive and therefore not as accessible as perhaps they would want it to be. Um, we do have these commercial needs. We do need to not turn a profit, but we, we are supposed to be sustainable. Um, haven't been financially sustainable um, yet uh, uh, for many different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so th- there are tensions there, but but and also when you are competing for um, some of the halls, we have got four main halls in Harpa, uh, and you are you have competing bookings from uh, the cultural side versus the uh, mice, you know, section. Uh, th- that can also be sort of a bit tricky. The, the what section, so, sorry? Mice, you know, meetings, incentives, oh, and conferences, so that, that's that section, which is more like the commercial section. Of course, we have lots of commercial activity uh, uh, in terms of concerts, you know, but then there are other, there are more like, like, you know, chamber orchestras or single musicians, those who are starting out, you know, they would not fill the big hall and it can be quite a challenge to sell, you know, enough tickets to uh, basically um, have it commercially or sort of financially, let's put it say, uh, put it like that, financially viable to rent uh, a, a hall in Harpa. Mm-hmm. But my perspective is, and I, I understand all these uh, voices and this criticism, but my perspective is also that Harpa is not supposed to sort of um, overshadow everything. I mean, we need all the smaller venues and we need all the variety of, of different halls around Reykjavik as well. And it doesn't mean that everyone should come to Harpa and have their concert in Harpa. You know, the other other venues uh, need to flourish uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And that it provides, Harpa has provided something for them as well, provided something for the local music scene and, and the rest of the cultural scene. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, that that's really the majority of the programming is, uh, is Icelandic. Mm-hmm. And let's go back to the building then. Um, of course, the building is, as I said in my introduction, yet another one of these uh, star architecture, incredible glass facades, which, as you said, does something to create a big wow factor. To what extent do you think that wow factor or that way of delivering a wow factor is very much rooted in the 2000s? You know, we can think of the Tate Modern, the Guggenheim Bilbao, um, Harper and many others. But post-pandemic, do you think there'll be a new way of bringing about a wow factor when cultural institutions are established? Um, what shall I say? Yes and no. I mean, but we have seen recent examples of of absolutely wonderful wow factor buildings. I mean, just uh, recently in Arles in France. Um, yes, is we had a, um, a conversation with Maya Hoffman only a couple of podcasts ago. Well, there you go. You know, that, that's a, a building that I, I'm very much looking forward to visit once we are back to normal, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> at some time in the future. But but to be honest, I, I think um, 
as I said earlier, the the content is is everything. If you if you have a wonderfully iconic building, and you don't have a heart, you don't have that content. It's just going to be a shell, and I don't think that is um, sustainable uh, in, into any sort of future. I mean, I think then as a as a building, yes, you can see it as a sculpture, but it it also has to have a functionality from my perspective, at least. Um, and, and it needs to serve the community. If you can do that, if you can serve the community and have it as a, as a really, um, how can I put this, sort of uh, rooted, genuinely rooted in the community and have this wow factor, this amazing uh, sculpture of an architecture or, or an interesting uh, visually you know, uh, entity, then, then that's great. But if you only have the wow factor and not the heart, I think you are. Uh, I, I think that that's no good. I mean, I don't think that works in the long run. Mm-hmm. It ends up being empty to some extent. Yeah, yeah. And so, what are the challenges in serving the community now as we battle on through the pandemic and and sort of um, brave uncharted waters? Well, of course, we are experiencing um, incredible. <laughs> Uh, complications and challenging challenges uh, in this situation. But having said that, um, last year, I mean, I, we can't complain compared to many venues in in Europe, for example, or or the UK. So we have managed to keep Harpa uh, open, more or less, obviously with major restrictions. So last year we had a in in, in spite of COVID, we had like 450 events. So I, I was amazed, wow. you know, when we were, yeah, exactly. I was really amazed. Of course, we are c- uh, calculating uh, in, in that figure, you know, the sort of streaming events that, that took place in Harpa. Uh, mm. But that's not the majority of this. That's just a minority. So we managed, we used every single possibility we could within the restriction uh, restrictions uh, to, to have um, events here. And because Harpa is, is, is a huge building, we've got these four halls that I mentioned. The big hall is an 1,800-seater, and it's got 12, you know, entrances and exits, you know. And so we could easily, or more easily than um, many other venues, manage, you know, with the restrictions and keep groups apart and, and so forth. But it, it is really, it has been very uh, challenging. And this summer, we have had the building more or less closed down uh, for sort of public access. We've just opened it in connection to individual events. And the reason is we are changing quite a a lot uh, on the ground floor in the foyer, moving things around, getting uh, new partners in uh, to run restaurants and a shop and and so forth. And and we're experiencing uh, 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 sort of preparing for... Um, new experiences um, in in Harpa. So we've been using COVID to do this, mm-hmm. and uh, and hopefully we will be able to reopen uh, at the end of August. I'm not sure though. We'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And do you think that going forward, then there will be more? We'd mentioned a little bit about the the sort of business aspect of Harpa. Uh, and the business aspect of cultural institutions more broadly, do you think that that will be intensified uh, in the future as a result of these uncertainties? Well, I think 
to a degree that's probably uh, inevitable because I don't think um, the taxpayers are going to be able to fund as much culture as uh, they have done before. And this is very unfortunate. I mean, of course, we do have companies that are making a huge profit in COVID and they're really well off. Others are not. Uh, but I, I fear that COVID will mean that in the next uh, three to five years, we will see quite a lot of traditional institutions uh, closed down. I'm not talking about Iceland here. I'm talking about just in general in, mm. in Europe and, and of course in the in the States probably as well, although they are obviously not reliant so much on or perhaps not at all on, on public money. But in Europe, I fear this will be the case. So we will have perhaps fewer uh, culture houses and cultural institutions, but you might have more of these smaller venues and obviously digital uh, content and, and all kinds of smaller things like that. Um, the, the financial part, the funding part is always a challenge. And, um, and whether, and we, I know for a fact, we have had a, a problem with it. And I think most of my colleagues that I'm in touch with, whether it's in Europe or elsewhere, uh, are struggling with finding um, the, the, the income model for the digital content. I mean, everyone has gone digital. We have to do it to be relevant and to, to continue to sort of share the content. But, but really to uh, make money on it, enough for it to be financially viable is, is virtually impossible. Mm -hmm. Well, no one has found the, the magic solution, let's put it this way. It's not impossible, but, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. So I think there are major challenges ahead when it comes to funding. Sure, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. And one final question: What do you think um, the Reykjavik effect has been? Then, uh, what's particular about the story of Reykjavik and Harper, and what do you think it will retain as it moves into the next decade? Well, I think um, I think this sort of turnaround. I mean, th this is such a dramatic story of this building. Mm. It, it, it's that sort of age-old dream and it's something that, that took a lot of courage to do and um, and I think it, it teaches us a lesson of you know you have to think big you know uh, you have to have the courage to to um, to finish things and and pull through even though there is a lot of adversity uh, that happened in 2008 and 9 and it's happening now as well um, this is a small nation Perhaps proportionately, Harpa is a, is a humongous, you know, <laughs> project for a small nation. But it has, it has turned out to be such a, a fantastic investment as far as I see it. And I'm talking about investment in terms of value of, of culture, economical value, and also community value. So, um, so I think that this is the lesson. It's also a lesson that, you know, with, with careful... With, with careful attention to the content, to, to being open and, and humble and accessible, you can really, um, how can I say, you, you can really uh, get that broad consensus, that sense of ownership, broad ownership, which I think is key to uh, a big expensive building like this, that the nation, I mean, the taxpayers, the people who own this building, they really have, they feel that they have got a stake in it. They, they, they really can come. It's really their building. So I think that is, I, I would like to think that that is a, a great sort of uh, take 
uh, on on the saga of, of uh, Harpa and Reykjavik. Mm, absolutely. Long may it continue. Wish you all the best for uh, the next few years. Svan Hilda Konradsdottir, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to FDI Podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.